Coming up next, the book ending reads The Odyssey! Nathan Albertson, in honor of Homer, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let the muses flow through me today. I'm not going to use any of my normal shtick. None of it. I'm just going to, the muses are going to speak through me. I'm going to come up with completely new stuff on the spot. First time booking history is going to be made. So my my name is, nope, I'm not even going to say that my name is Nathan because that's what I always say. I'm going to say the person that's talking to you right now, well, his name is Nathan Albertson. He's a guy that speaks on podcasts about books like this one the bucketing whoa and he's joined by this is hard without my shtick brandon yeah my shtick is helpful feels really weird when i was doing my shtick i'd just be like eh, but instead i gotta come up with new things over there Almost. we've got brandon yeah a brawny beast of a man hey it's like King, old King Kong, better yeah. than old King Kong, better than old King Kong, meaner than a junkyard dog. I mean, we did establish I'm Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we established last Jake episode. Miss, mix, J- Jake missed that. <laughs> Jake missed that. We, we just established that Brendan is a purple space monster. Oh, he snapped his fingers. I don't know if you noticed half of half of uh, humanity turning to dust while you were not here. But Nathan failed to go I for the head. I must have been driving. I did fail to go for the head. So there's Brandon. He's a guy that but you somehow know. the heroes all survived. Somehow, well, not Spider Man. Spoilers. But the big ones. Yeah. All the, the original Avengers. The original yeah, Avengers. They all survived. Yeah. And presumably, they'll be assembling. All right. So there's Brandon. Guy, he's a literature guy. He talks about yeah. literature. He provides context on our podcast. There's Jake. He's, uh, oh, man, a holy man. So <laughs> I'm trying to think of synonyms for the things I like usually Rasputin. say. Yeah. <laughs> Minister would work. Minister, Minister, yes. He's the very reverend. No, not the very, probably not very, because that's actually a specific title in some denominations. Right. But you're the just... very reverend is a designation? Yeah, it's probably Most not for reverend. us. But, but Jake, he's the teaching elder that talks about literature. True He enough. does that. Tell us about your state True of enough. being, that's Jake. T- that's what TE actually stands for. My state of being. Yeah. I am here. You're here. You've enjoyed some baseball with your son. I understand yeah. he pitched a couple of innings and then... Yeah, I pitched two shutout innings in a tie, actually. I don't know what that means, but presumably our listeners all love baseball, Mama, and American Pie. Not the film series, American Pie. We're not <laughs> no. that kind of podcast. I am assuming that's what everybody was thinking. I'm glad you clarified. Why did I even say American Pie? I should have meant Apple Pie. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. I drove my Chevy to the levee, but... The levee was dry. It was dry. It was completely dry. What were the good old boys doing down there? Uh, they were drinking whiskey and rye. Uh, yeah. Right. You think this will be the day we die? <laughs> yeah, this could be the day we die. I uh. think it will be. Yeah. <laughs> if I snap again. <laughs> yeah, if you snap again, then that's the other half. <laughs> How did Thanos not know that he would be one that would disappear? Eh, I think it was in a snap. Yeah, okay. I think he snapped in such a way that it wouldn't be him. I got cornered today and uh, given some big picture theory about Avengers. Pretty good theory. Cornered it by someone we know? Yeah. By some random riot (laughs) of people with torches (laughs) and a... I need to tell you something about Avengers, (laughs) random guy. Some homeless bum on the street. (laughs) Is this somebody we... I I was walking between baseball games and I ran into a friend Mm -hmm. and he said, hey, I'm going to tell you my take on Avengers. Uh, Infinity War was everybody failing. The gods failing, the anti-heroes failing, and the patriarchy failing in Tony, getting the closest. And now we've got Thanos, the ultimate patriarch who won. Our last look is at what it's going to take to bring down the patriarchy. It's Captain Marvel. A woman. Feminism is what's going to save the universe. It's uh, possible that they do that, but that would be very unsatisfying for wow. most people. It is Disney. Yeah. They did do this exact same maneuver with... Star Wars. The Star Wars. If he's right, I'm going to be so angry. I don't think he's right. I think Marvel's. I think think they realize that it's unsatisfying for us to see a hero we haven't even met yet take out the big bad of 10 years. We got to see one of. While all the heroes that we love futilely fail. I mean, if they wanted to do feminism, they could do Natasha and Gamora and they could they could have a chick strike the killing blow, but it can't be some chick we've never met. Well, it's not good storytelling. And also the fact. They got to introduce her to us. Doctor Strange seemed to know what was going on, that this was the right path. 
maybe it was you guys on the second take, mm-hmm. but I think whoever made the point that the next movie will be a Captain America movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's right. And the Russo brothers and have I think, said the next movie will be a Captain America movie and their apology for this one not being. No, I th- and I think that it's going to be a Captain America movie setting up the fact that Captain America will be the one to make the ultimate sacrifice. Right. I think he's the only guaranteed death. I think you're probably right. Yep. I bet they do a good job. Donor shout outs! <laughs> Yay! Well, there goes now, Jake, you missed it last time we did, which means you should probably have to do the same thing we did and do it for all 10 of these. Oh, yeah? Yep. See if he does a better job. See if you do a better job. Got to get inspired yep. by that muse. Yep. Okay. Be, uh, sing to us. Sing to Jake, oh muse. Inspiration. In the form of iambic pentameter. Uh-oh. You are going to shout out our shout out ease. <laughs> That's pretty rough. He could do hexameter this time. That's true. You could do that hexameter. Is Homer's chosen form. Yep. Homeric hexameter. Uh, you get 12 beats. 12. 12. Is he going to do iambic hexameter? It's usually dactylic, Sheesh, guys. It? What are you trying to do to me? I'm going to have to work this out with pencil. We'll just we'll stick paper. to iambic. Here, I'll, uh, Brandon will show you Just how do blank done. verse. Brandon? Yes. Show him how it's done with some iambic pentameter, my friend, for Uh-oh. Lily of the Valley. Oh, how oh. are you, sweet Lily? Oh, Valley. <laughs> Perfect. There Brilliant. All right, Jake, do us some iambic pentameter for Andrew and Esther and little baby Timothy. <laughs> We didn't bother with the IMs in the end. Just get the 10. <laughs> we may have Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds and sun. Andrew and Esther and lovebirds, the sun. Yeah, you got it. The, love, the lovebirds and sun. Andrew yeah. the, hey, man, and Esther, you made that look easy. Yeah. I think sun. we suffered with that one. Yeah, no, no, Jake's a regular Billy S. Oh, yeah, he's a good poet. And sun. We're like a Christy M or something yeah, at yeah. best. Yeah, at best. But he's a Billy S. He's a Billy S. Um, Brennan, give me some, or no, I'll, I'll, I'll throw myself in the ring here. Jenny Z, inscrutable Jenny, thanks for the cash. There we go. Uh, who's, uh, Brennan's up. John and Jill and little baby Max. I thought he was doing all these. Yeah, I decided to have mercy on him. John and Jill and sweet little baby Max. I lost count, Sadie. No, that's, that's 10. I don't know if that's really iambic, but no, I No, it's not iambic. Uh, Jake, give us some iambic pentameter for David's Mighty Men Transport. Is David's Mighty Men Transport going to allow me to do that? Sure. Oh, David's Mighty Transport. No, none of these, Men none of these are iambic. Don't worry. David's Mighty Men Transport's just intrinsically not iambic, right? You can scramble it a little bit. Oh, David's mighty transport, transport men, men. Oh, David's mighty men transport. Thank you, David's mighty okay. men transport. Thank you, David's mighty men transport. Transport, yeah, transport, yeah. Port. Oh, thank yeah. you, David. David's oh. mighty men transport. Oh, my beloved mother Beth. Thank you. There you go. You got Maya. Oh, Maya, 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 Maya. Hey. I think that's what we did last time. (laughs) Oh, Maya, you're the best. Hope all is well. (laughs) There's a little comment in there. (laughs) Uh, We got Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese, Brandon, or whatever your name is. Jake? Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Seriously? Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Wow. Potameter. I don't know about the iambic. It's not qu- well. Katie kind of messes it up. Oh, Kate and Jay, you love that cheese. You're cold. Oh, Kate and Jay, you love that cheese. You're cold. That's works. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, glad you think that was great. Uh, who's whose turn is it? Is your turn? Oh, you get to do Benny and Dana, Tiberius. Oh, Ben and Dana, how are you today? Great. There you go, Jake. Uh, you got Nathan, not me. Oh, Nathan, not Nathan. Thank you so much. Oh, Nathan, not Nathan. Thank you so much. All right. That leaves nice. me for Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds, and unnamed future child. Oh, Eric and Catherine, I love you a lot. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds and child. There we go. Jake's a poet. Nice Who's... little dactyls there. <laughs> Brandon, you've got <laughs> Professor X. Professor X, you're so mysterious. That oh, works. Sure. Should we give that to him, Jake? <laughs> Stretching. All right. We thank our donors. Go to go to patreon.com slash. Well, no. I screwed it up. Patreon.com slash. The, the booketing. There you go. And give us cash. Oh, won't you please? Yes, do. We're really good at this. We are great. We are fantastic. 
forthcoming epic poem that we're writing. Mm-hmm. Oh, no! The guns are going off. Are they? Yeehaw! Uh, we've come to the part of the show, everyone's favorite part of the show. It's called Contextual Texan. Jake, yeah. what happens in Contextual Texan? It's the part of the show where Brandon comes out and gives us some much-needed context for discussing the work at hand. And the work at hand is... Homer's Odyssey, or Homer's, is it Homer's Odyssey? Or is it? That's what or I'm hoping it? to That's find out. the big question, I guess. That'll be the looming question mm-hmm. over today. The looming question. <laughs> so, Take it away, um, Brandon. Hopefully you guys are going to jump in and help out some. Hopefully you're going to give done. us a hail and hearty yee-haw. I don't think we've got one yet. Yee-haw! That was so hail. Was it hearty? Eh, it was sufficiently. Yee-haw! <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Little, little cowboys. <laughs> Take it away, Brandon. Little cowboys. Little Let's cow- do it. Yeah, I don't. Well, we've got our pattern set so let's just start off by talking about homer but wait we can't when we did our eb white context we kind of had a digressing weaving eb white style context Mm -hmm. let's uh in honor of c.s lewis let's go for definitions and defining categories and terms and all that indeed crud Mm-hmm. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. We actually liked Preface to Paradise Lost. I don't know if Jake, you don't, you haven't listened to the episode yet. I haven't listened to the episode. Because fun fact for people listening, the episode that you listened to last week was taped an a hour ago. ago, a yeah. scant hour ago. So this is all I only back got to back. It in the mail like yesterday or the day before. Well, we also scrambled our schedule up because, as we said last week, folks, we've got a big, exciting 100th episode, spectacular that we're working towards. I think you're going to like it. Yeah, we, we actually weren't scheduled to do this for another three or four weeks, right. right? We scrambled everything up because we wanted to give people the 100th episode, spectacular that they deserve. But we still have not announced what it is, at least insofar as I'm playing a game with our listeners. But you can go to social media and figure Always. it out very easily. Always. That's a clue. All right. So, folks, very easy to figure out what we're doing for the 100th. We've not been shy about sharing clues on social media, but I'm still not going to tell you what it is because it's more fun not to. But let's just say it's one of the most requested things ever, and it's something that we have interesting thoughts about, I think. So, anyway. We have great thoughts about it. Uh, (laughs) Back to Homer. Yes, Homer, yes. Sing to us, oh, Brandon. Oh, let's do this. Context. Do I have to do this in hexameter, the uh, whole context? Yes. No. Yeah. If you pay attention, folks, you will notice that Brandon's going to do, he's not going to draw attention to it, but he will. And you can chart it on your a piece of paper. You can follow along. Brandon's going to do the next hour or whatever of context in perfect Homeric hexameter. Yeah. So, spiritanes in days gone by. <laughs> <laughs> Never fails. Oh, let's do this. Okay, so let's start where we usually start. Let's start by talking about Homer, but Mm. that already gets us into the weeds because it's a big question with scholarship as to who is Homer. It's fair to say that if you're looking at literary history, you kind of have two figures that loom largely over all of Western the Western canon. Mm -hmm. You have Homer and you have Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. and these guys have been raised to the level of. Like literary gods. The third one, and arguably, so, Ernest Klein. <laughs> Brandon just shot Nathan. <laughs> so, hey, Jake, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm okay. Homer has had this huge influence over literary history, just like Shakespeare has had a huge influence over literary history, in the sense that almost every author who writes is in some way writing what they write because these men existed and told the stories they told. Right. So think about even the modern landscape. You've got, oh, brother, where art thou? You've got the Avengers in some way exists because um, of the Odyssey. You have epic tradition has created these possibilities, these stories that we have today, such as, like I said, the Avengers. Mm -hmm. You have comic book storylines because you had epic poetry, and epic poetry had its roots and its foundations in the stories that Homer told. But you can't overstate the importance of Homer. I always get that wrong, I realize. But you I can't overstate it. You can't overstate the importance of Homer, just like you can't overstate the importance of Shakespeare, right? I think Homer... I'm going to try and overstate the importance of Homer. Okay. I think Homer invented the moon. Okay, well, you just overstated the importance of Homer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently you can overstate my statement about not overstating the importance <laughs> of Homer. Hey, well, uh, how about uh, you can't overstate Homer's influence on Western literature and education? Thank you, Jake. Homer got in a time machine and went to Elizabethan England and wrote all of Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> that's probably that's true. not an overstatement. That's just a lie. Yeah, that's just a lie. No, I think you're right. I think he is a time lord. Oh, okay. Yeah, he is, <laughs> so the, he is Dr. It's Hill. actually neither a lie nor an overstatement. It's just a yeah. statement of fact. Yeah. <laughs> 
As we're going to find out, he wrote all of the great masterpieces of literary history. Great. Was it, we're all written by Homer. That is the bookending's approved theory. Ready Player One by Homer. But just like, yes, Ready Player One. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but Homer's influence, you see it in every era of Western literary tradition. So the Romantics, they had Chapman's Homer, which was this translation that was foundational. And then one of them wrote a sonnet about looking into Chapman's Homer. Have you ever read this before? Yeah, I think I have. Yeah, I mean, this is a foundational romantic sonnet. By Mr. Keats. You want to read it for us? Yes. This is a poem called On First Looking Into Chapman's Homer by John Keats. Much have I traveled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, or been, I suppose is what he wants me to say, maybe, yeah, I don't know. Probably. Uh, which bards and fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told. The deep-browed Homer ruled as his demance. Yeah. I'm not doing a very good job of reading Demean. this. Demeans? Demeans? Yet did I never breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Yeah. So he just compared, for those who are keeping track at home, he compared reading Chapman's Homer to being Cortez looking at the new world. Yeah, and I think this actually has echoes of what C.S. Lewis was saying about Homer. There's a sense of wild naturalness to Homer Mm -hmm. and the language that he uses, the repetitions that he uses, all these things that draw you into the epic so you forget yourself. But also it's this strange world that you're now a part of. And you get to see the adventures of Odysseus both magnified, but also as though you're a part of it, right? And it's kind of what Lewis was arguing with with Paradise Lost. With this, you have so... Homer, the importance of Homer, but particularly the importance of Homer as he is translated. And that's always something we're going to deal with with Homer, is the fact that, one, we have this character, and he really is a character in literary history that we call Homer, and then we have the translations that we have Homer through. And so the one that we used was... Uh, Robert Fagels. Robert Fagels. Is it Fitzgerald? Is that the guy? Yeah, Fitzgerald's the older one. Yeah, he has an older one. And then there's another one. There's the new one. Yeah, there's the new one. Which is actually pretty good. Someone recommended that we use that one. Yeah, and we looked um, at it, and it was it was good. Yeah, but um, we stuck with uh, the current standard for this reading. Yeah, I mean, Fagels is tried and proved. Everybody, a lot of people recommend him. A lot of people I respect recommend him, and we'll talk about translation here later. So Homer, both in the story that he told, the epic tradition that he started, or at least was a part of starting, and then the way that we have interpreted Homer and made him a part of the Western literary tradition. It's only rivaled by Shakespeare. Right. And so he's a big deal. And yet, like Shakespeare, a lot of people think that he never existed. Mm. (laughs) And so that's the first thing we deal with is traditionally, like 1600s, 1700s, when we were in the classical period, the literary history, people thought they knew who Homer was. He was... Can I just say... Yeah. Sorry, my brain took a long time to say this, but I think it's always worth repeating. The bookening does not support Shakespeare truthers. Right, no. Jake? True. Gross. Now, whether or not we're going to support Homer truthers is a I'm different question. I'm excited to find out. What do you guys think? Where do you think you'll land, Jake? Do you think it matters as much with Homer? I, I don't think it matters as much with Homer. Yeah. I can see myself being convinced that the Iliad was written by somebody different than who wrote the Odyssey. And Well, spoilers. That's actually the respected and probably proven literary stance now, is that the Iliad and the Odyssey were not written by the same person, that the Odyssey was written later and in response to the Iliad, because it kind of has nods to the Iliad, Mm -hmm. but it's very different in style and tone. It's just so much superior to the Iliad, in my opinion. Yes. That's intriguing. But I tend to default to the, if you tried to pin me down, I'm going to say, well, Homer was a dude and he, he wrote both of them or was the assembler of both of those. Yeah. I think my bias is always towards away from the, oh, what do I want to say? My baggage in, in this is that my bias, my prejudice is always going to be towards great men. I like to read history through the lens or think of history through the lens of great men, which is oftentimes a helpful way to think about it. It's not, I'm not saying it's a hundred percent all the way, but when people start talking about movements or. My bias is a hundred percent against little men who make their place off of thinking they can parse distinctions among great men. 
Right. Yeah. Which is uh, what a lot of Shakespeare truthers feel like, for example. You know, the same arguments that Shakespeare truthers use are the same arguments that are used to say that the Apostle Paul wrote maybe three to five of the epistles. Hmm. And they're they're really inane type arguments. I was using different vocabulary here than in the other one. Uh, not like anyone could would ever think of using a different, different style. Or... style, tone, and vocabulary. Well, guess what? You know, when he's writing to Timothy, when you write a letter to somebody you consider to be a son, it might take on a different tone and use a different vocabulary than ways of, you might have different ways of expressing yourself than if you wrote something to a church that you spent a couple days with this one time. I mean, Jake, I'm famous for maintaining the exact same tone, the exact same style, the exact same, what was the other thing? In everything that I write or say. Over the course of your entire life. Yeah. Yeah, Nathan has never changed. Decades. No matter who I'm talking to, you'll notice on the podcasts, I maintain the exact same approach and personality and everything consistently through all our podcasts. Yeah, you've never changed. Because I'm a very uncomplicated human being, as we all are, not, or are. So. Very straightforward. mm Mm-hmm. No irony. Mm Mm-hmm. No sarcasm. Mm -hmm. Never. Never. Nope. I don't adapt myself situationally. Whatever. Yeah, so you like to look at history through the lens of great men. Right. My my bias, and I'm willing to, but I'm totally prepared for you to prove to me that Homer was 15 different women. Yeah. But if that's what you're going to do, Brandon, but yeah, I'm... He's Captain Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> but my bias is always going to be towards, uh, you know, tradition says it was one dude who happened to be special. I think that's a... Yeah. I mean... It's not wrong to look at things that way. I think it's helpful. I I think Shakespeare's Shakespeare. Right. And I don't like the truthers. Yep. But then we, the further we get back in history, though, like the Beowulf poet, mm-hmm. we don't know who he was or if he was even one poet, right? We know that it was a series of oral traditions that were then combined. And maybe there was one poet who oversaw the combination and gave it life in this poem that we have today. Maybe it wasn't. We don't know. Mm-hmm. That's part of the problem. And we're... And, when where the issue arises with what Jake was saying with Paul is when we then try to take these issues that we have with like Homer and with Beowulf and then apply it to Scripture. Right. There, we're saying that God preserved Scripture and that these men wrote it, that Paul wrote the letters that he wrote. There's faith we bring to it that we don't bring to whether or not Homer wrote Homer. Sure. And that is one of the problems that I end up having with things like the classical movement is they seem to want to bring a lot of faith to the fact that Homer wrote Homer and that Homer was this inspired genius, like we think of inspired genius today, that then, you know, is worthy of praise. Adulation, yeah. Adulation. Um, But I'm sure we'll get there. Yes. But we do have what people have historically thought of Homer as. They thought that he was famously a blind bard. Right. And that he came from Ionia, which is this, apparently the central part of Western seaboard of Asia Minor, which is Turkey. And so some even conjecture that if he was a poet who lived at some point, that he may have actually lived to see the Trojan War, which would have been in the 1200s, because Troy would have been right over there in Asia Minor right. at that point. And really, we don't know a whole lot more about him. We know that a lot of the early poets in Greece, like Sappho and Pindar. But people like that were using Homeric-influenced images and lines and stuff in there. So he was influential even in early poetic tradition in Greece. And so whether or not he was a person or whether this was just tradition that carried over, we saw elements of early what we call Homeric style in very early poetry. It wasn't until a little bit later when Athens and these Greek cultured spaces began to rise up that we saw Homer deified like he became. And so Mm -hmm. we actually, there were like temples built to Homer until finally in about close to when Plato and Aristotle would have been around, Homer became an essential part of the schooling system in the the Greek Mm city-states. And so he was looked at as fundamental to education. He was looked at kind of as their Shakespeare, been seen as a father of their language, as this guy who was inspired by the muses. We talked a lot about that with the Preface to Paradise Lost episode. Right. But he would have been seen as being this inspired bard who the muses gave this inspiration to, who had this ability then to sing beautiful, epic poems. And his language was seen as so heightened and perfect and beautiful that his it was used as they would have read it like people do in classical schools nowadays. They would have read it and then recited it and written it down and modeled their own writing after it. But just and to so, make sure the timeline is clear for people, Homer would have been... True or false, Homer would have been hundreds of years before what we think of when we think of Greece and we think of yeah. um, Athens and we think of um, Plato and Socrates and yeah, all Yeah, so the timeline's unclear. So if he was, if he did live during the 
Trojan War, mm-hmm. then that guy who was, what was his name? The guy who found Troy. Oh, the, arche- the archaeologist? Yeah. I forget. I think he said it somewhere in, where in the 1200s. Mm-hmm. It's agreed that that's kind of early. He probably, the Homeric poems as we have them today were probably written like in the 700s. Plato and Socrates, they would have been 400s. So late 400s, and that would have been the rise of the Athens city-states and all that. I guess to to take another step back then, when we look at Homer, we think of like three, basically three periods in Greek history. We have the early, early pre-classical Greece. Then we have classical Greece. Classical Greece would have been Homer up until the point when Alexander the Great started his empire. After Alexander the Great starts his empire, that's called the Hellenistic period. And almost, we don't really think of Greek literature and stuff in the Hellenistic period. So the flowering of Greek thought happened in this classical period, and it starts with Homer. And like I said, Homer was seen as this influencer of Greek education, of Greek rhetoric, of Greek poetry, all these things that we think of as flowering in Greece. Homer had a huge influence over it. But it's interesting because we don't really see instances of Homer being referred to as Homer until about the 400s. Even then, he may have been a created figure just in Greek culture, and people have tried to figure out what the name Homer means. Some think it actually means like he who brings order to the verses or something like that. There's this sense of mystery as to who Homer was. Nobody, but we have a created idea. I mean, you guys have heard before that he was the blind, right? Sure. He was blind. Oh, yeah. He came out of Ionia. He used Ionic Greek, and that was like he, that's what he did, and he was inspired by the muses. Plato refers to him a lot, actually, with respect. Um, I believe in the Republic. I don't think he would have been one of the poets that would have been cast out of the city. No, but, Plato's always suspicious of anything artistic, but... But Homer, he had some respect for. And so, yeah, so Homer was this huge influence even over classical Greek, but it's pretty commonly accepted that he would have been writing in the 700s, just so people know what also came out of classical Greece. You had this epic tradition, then you also had the tragedy, which was born in classical Greece with like Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles. You had early comedy that was born in classical Greece with Aristophanes, the clouds, um, and the Lysistrata. Would it have been Aeschylus who wrote the Oedipus Rex or is that Sophocles? I thought that was Sophocles. It's Sophocles, you're right. And uh, famously, Oedipus Rex is what would then give rise to Freud and yes. those guys. He would give him his famous uh, mm-hmm. the Oedipus Complex. Yep. It would also be the foundational text for Aristotle's poetics, which would then reign supreme as the way that people understood poetry and catharsis and all this for years. So everything that was happening in classical Greece, the rhetoric that was coming out of it, the poetry that was coming out of it, would have a strong sway over Western literary tradition, and it still does. And king of all of these, if you had to like declare at least two kings, would be Plato it would be Homer. Those are the guys that had like the most influence. Well, maybe Aristotle. Sure. But Aristotle was like just basically Plato with a twist. He's like seven up mm-hmm. to Plato's sprite. <laughs> the muses are flowing through Brandon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great metaphors. I've had that horse by its tail. It's rotten. Yep. <laughs> Jake missed that one. Yeah, yeah, Jake missed some great metaphors. <laughs> so, Spirit Days and Days Gone By. Spirit Days and Days Gone By. A needle-pulling thread. A needle-pulling thread. You have any more you want to add? I think those are the big two things that I think of when you say so. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. needle-pulling so, a needle-pulling thread. <laughs> so that's Homer. There, we're done. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> See you next time, folks. Yeah. Well, that just gets us up. So that's who Homer was, mm-hmm. but... He's fascinating. So even the point is that even in early Greek history, we still, he's like, he's a figure. He's like this deified figure that we don't really know. He's kind of like Socrates. We know Socrates through Plato. Right. But nobody actually knows who Socrates was. So we know Homer because he has kind of been created for us. We have these traditions about who Homer was. We have these poems, which we imagine because of the way we look at art and stuff in Western tradition, we mostly want to see it as being written by great men, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said. Right. So we want to see it as being Homer, having written these things. And for a long time, that was the prevailing theory. Then finally, you get into the 1800s and, you know, a lot of trash criticism happened in the 1800s. That's when you get, is it Schleiermacher who brought historicism to biblical yes. criticism? Yeah. It's no wonder. the worst. Yeah. No wonder that when Schleiermacher was doing his divisiveness with biblical. Uh, they, they called it higher criticism. Higher explain criticism. it. Explain it to our listeners in a sentence or because two. Because it'll help. It's the exact same thing that happened with Homer, Homeric studies. Uh, he was a part of the higher criticism movement and sort of a a game changer because he was also sort of a popularizer. He stood right at the cusp of the higher critical movement 
his goal, his whole thing was, you know, uh, forget the 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 historical facts of scripture. Love is what what really matters. That was part of like what he did. Yeah. So he's sort of seen as like the father of modern liberal Christianity because yeah. of that. But it's because he was standing at the crux of higher criticism, which was just this movement that really began in Germany with the goal of getting to the origin of the text and yep. its original authorship, its original meaning and its original historical context. And so just a lot of very arrogant people uh, thought that they were going to overturn a, cent- a millennia and a half of biblical scholarship because they were going to free themselves and get to the roots of things and stand yeah. outside of their own time and prejudices, which of course they failed to do. They failed to see that they were actually a part of yeah. a movement that was very proud in, in its rationalism. Maybe open that up a little bit more because it sounds great. Get to the original meaning, see what the historical context of something is. What's wrong with that, Jake? Uh, nothing's wrong with that ostensibly, but what you have are these guys writing in the 17th, 18th, mostly in the 18th, and then a really strong push in the 19th century who think that they're going to sort of wipe the slate clean almost. Yeah, they're just going to start from scratch. And they're going to understand what it was like to be a Hellenistic Jew in Roman times better than, you know, guys writing in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries would. Yeah. It's just really ludicrous. They're going to try to reconstruct things like that. And that's where you get these guys looking so minutely at the New Testament that they say, oh man, the language that Paul uses in Ephesians and Colossians is really different than the language in Philippians and First and Second Corinthians. Oh man, that must mean that Paul didn't write both of these things. And then compare that to First and Second Timothy and Titus. Well, that's got a totally different tone. You know, it's just that arrogance of just like, can you just step back for a second and recognize that you give somebody 20, 30, 40 years and a couple of different contexts to write to for different reasons and maybe things he writes are going to sound very different. I don't maybe. know. Maybe maybe we yeah. should just trust the fact that nobody in the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries questioned Pauline authorship. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was a reason for that. Maybe there's a reason why it's come. But to, to step back and say, oh, no, now I, me, alone in my ivory tower in Germany somewhere— I finally with, figured it out a couple for the first of books, time. I figured it out. I've pulled it out. Well, these are these are scholars that are part of this rationalistic, hyper-rationalistic movement. And and they were incredibly arrogant in the way that they approached these ancient texts. What not just biblical texts, but other texts. Yeah. And that that arrogance has just carried into modernity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that's where you see like the debates about Eve being a warrior, help right. me being warrior. And that you still see I mean, yeah, it is the way that liberals approach criticism. And so it can be useful, not like you said, looking at the finding the origins of things. It's not a bad instinct. Sure. Right. So I like like Stephen Greenblatt. I mentioned him before as a a critic of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. His whole point is to get back to like the origin, to go and just look as much as you can at what it would was Elizabethan culture like. But the problem is the pride that's involved and the way that the textual criticism overturns everything else. Yeah. I keep so, thinking of Chesterton's, you know, tradition is the democ- democracy of the dead. These people are people that place themselves above that yeah. and just say, to heck with all of it. I'm well, going to be the one that... You know, I had, a pro- I had a professor in college who wrote a paper about his whole st- shtick was slavery and early Christianity. That was his deal. He had... F- gotten a hold of some ancient manuscript that he found in a library somewhere that was a slave apprenticeship contract. And he found some elements in the slave apprenticeship contract. And he was able to draw, I think, really spurious connections between elements of a slave apprenticeship contract and Paul's letter to Philemon. And so Paul's letter to Philemon is a slave apprenticeship contract. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's the total opposite of what you think it is. It's not some guy talking to another Christian about here's your slave that ran away. It's a contract mm-hmm. about how the apostle Paul wants this guy to be his slave. Yeah. And it's and wonder just, of wonders, this guy was the first guy to ever put two and two together. That's and right, based on what one document. Everyone that he else found. before then, for right? for what uh, two thousand years of scholarship was just was dumb. Nobody knew what they were talking about, but this guy finally. Yeah. He's figured it out. He got to the bottom of it. Yeah. And I wrote a paper, I wrote a paper that undercut his theory, but I had to use a play like Cali row. Yeah. You know, that thing, some ancient dumb play thing. 
Did he appreciate you undercutting his theory? He read my paper to all of his classes and asked me to publish a paper with him. Wow. And offered to write me a letter of recommendation to Harvard. Wow. So I guess he did then. (laughs) Yeah, he did. (laughs) I said no. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yep. And you took a microphone and you dropped it. And then walked out of the class. And walked out of the class and right into the booking studio. That's right. And here we are. And here we are. So Homer, (laughs) so the Schleiermacher stuff, it's important to understand where our criticism and our way of looking at the world, how it's shaped by the culture we're a part of. Mm -hmm. Because I think that when, so I made this point when we were talking about author and how we all, we all, we, we think of the necessity of separating text from author. And so we only look at the book, but we don't think about the author, but that's really a product of postmodern and this sort of cold new criticism that came out of World War II. That that's not the way anybody ever saw it before then. And so we have that bias because it's a created bias. In the 1800s, they had this created bias that was going to give rise to guys like Schleiermacher, and that's the bias that through science we can conquer the world. Mm -hmm. That's like through observation, through reading texts closely, all this thing. It's this progress of man. Science is going to win the day, and that science can help us understand everything. It gives us the perfect context. And so that's where we get the rise of the analysts who would then first start thinking, well, we actually, looking at these things... Looking at the Homeric poems, it looks like they're very close to oral tradition. That's probably how it was handed down. So probably this is actually a conglomeration of other smaller stories that then got put together in a larger story, maybe by a poet, but or maybe not. They might have just been compiled, and that's what we have today. And that's where the sort of Homeric, so this thing, and it's actually a big part of literary studies now for people who look at classical texts, it's called the Homeric question. And it's the question is, who is Homer? Was he a person? Did he exist? Was he this guy from Ionia or wherever it was? Was he from the Ionic coast of Asia Minor? Was he blind? Or was he this conglomerate of voices, right? Same principles are also, just to listeners know, also behind what's known as the critical text of the New Testament of Scripture, which is what most modern translations are based on. Yeah. Very different than what, uh, say, the King James is based on. By these the scholars of the very similar school and way of thinking, yeah. uh, compiling, deciding what they think is the actual text of Scripture that hasn't been added to by yeah. scribes over centuries and takes uh, gives pride of place and not necessarily to the most consistent manuscripts, but the oldest and slimmest of manuscripts. Yeah. Because so, there's a conceit that things tend to be added over time instead of subtracted and that's built right. up over time. And so that same thing applies to, to Homer. The idea is you probably started with something simple and short and sweet that got built up and edited and added to and refined yeah. over time as more poets assembled and built and added and refined, et cetera, et cetera, until we have them somehow the monkeys at their typewriters giving us a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have this, and then finally you have... So you have those guys, the analysts, and you opposed to them, you had these guys called the Unitarians, but they weren't like theological Unitarians, but they were guys who said, yeah, that probably is kind of how it happened, but eventually you get to the point, probably in the 7th century, 8th century BC, where there was this one genius who took all the traditions and then like was the Frankenstein, Dr. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein. He gave life to it. And he tied it together and he pulled out the themes and that's, that is Homer. So Homer, yeah, he was adopting all these older traditions and stories, but there was a Homer. Maybe he wasn't the blind poet from Turkey, but he was this genius who then gave life to the poems. And that's, that's the basic outline of the debate that even continues to today. We're going to settle it for people. I mean, I know which camp I sympathize with. I sympathize with there were the oral traditions, but there was someone who gave it life. So Brandon, you hear it here? He's a Unitarian. I'm a Unitarian. That's right. I just, we just, I actually just listened to it, but mm. it's brilliant. I don't see how this could just be a conglomeration of things that were then thrown together. Well, and structurally, and then, it just makes, yeah. the, 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 what do they call it? The telemachia, the, the first yeah. four books, they don't make <clears throat> sense as a thing on their own. They make sense as a beautiful setup yeah. for this story. Yeah. And there's um, a reason that even with all the production and stuff that goes into a movie, you still think of a director as an auteur, mm-hmm. right? Because the great movies still have to have some Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, right, that gives it life. 
even if there is a whole conglomerate behind it, there's still at least one visionary mm-hmm. that usually spearheads it and gives it that final thing that makes it what it is. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so I think that that's actually probably, I just used it right now. I wasn't thinking of this earlier, but probably the best analysis, analogy we have for what the Odyssey is and where it comes from would be a Hollywood a movie. movie. Mm-hmm. You have all these various parts that pre-existed, and then Homer takes it. Well, and, and it could gives it, life to it. It actually probably should be a Marvel movie, yeah. Because what you have even underneath in any movie, you have the writers, you have the screenwriters, you have the actors giving life, you have the yeah. team that pulls it together. <clears throat> but in a Marvel movie, you have a ton of source material yeah. mm-hmm. going back for decades that you're drawing from to pull out the one definitive story of yeah. Thanos and the Infinity Stones, although it's been done oh, and done and done and done. Yeah, exactly. And so this is the definitive story of Odysseus. Mm-hmm. They've all had these traditions. You've had, and even through the traditions, you've had the themes start to arise. I'm sure Wine, Dark Sea, all these things were in earlier poems. We talked about this with the Paradise Lost episode, mm-hmm. but part of epic tradition that we would have in Greece I need to pause again because I don't think I can, I don't think I made it clear enough how important classical Greece was to mm-hmm. literary. I, I, I said this, but I mean, I can say it again. You got to drive it home. Yeah. I mean, it was everything we think of as like literary tradition. Epic would give rise to the novel, mm-hmm. right? The lyrics that were in early Greece would give rise to the poetry as we have it today, the sonnet, everything, form. All these things that we think of with poetry comes out of ancient Greece. Drama comes out of ancient Greece. Theater, which would give rise to movies. All Mm. these things. I mean, ancient Greece was the hotbed where it all started to grow. And so you got, I mean, this is important. And so Homer comes out of this. To To that point, it both makes Homer great because he's this genius among geniuses, Mm -hmm. but it also kind of puts him in context. He's like, it's like one of those periods that we've talked about before. Like like Elizabethan Elizabethan England, England, where it was just, all the elements were just right to produce this fireworks of great art. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're looking at. That's that period of history. It's just life and life and life. Philosophy as we have it today, philosophical thinking that would rule the Catholic Church for years and years, the stuff that would give rise to Luther needing to have the Reformation, came because of Thomas Aquinas was a fanboy of Aristotle, right? Mm -hmm. All these things come out of um, ancient Greece, this period we're looking at. So you really can't overstate its importance. Mm -hmm. That's a proper use of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So where was I? Uh-oh, what did you interrupt? You're a Unitarian. Yeah, you're a- yeah, Unitarian. I'm a Unitarian. Now, does that mean that I think that I'm actually sympathetic to the f- viewpoint that maybe Homer didn't write the Iliad? Mm-hmm. Or if he did, it was just like he gave it a pass and it was his first go. <laughs> and, but the Odyssey is his masterpiece. You yeah. know, the the Iliad's like his uh, Titus Andronicus. Titus Andronicus, yeah. That's what I thought you were going to But um, the Odyssey is his Tempest mm-hmm. or King Lear, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's... Or his Hamlet, I guess, is the one. Right. Hamlet's not my personal favorite, but still, you know, it's his masterpiece. The uh, the Iliad is his Sugarland Express, and yeah. this is uh, the Odyssey is his Jaws or his Raiders of the Lost Ark. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. The Iliad is his beach poetry, and the Odyssey is his Ready Player One. Hey. <laughs> you guys. Are- <laughs> Whoa, yeah. <laughs> the Iliad is Rubber Soul, mm-hmm. and the Odyssey is Sergeant Pepper's. There you go. Yeah. Abbey Road. Yeah. That's true. What? You're right. I said Abbey Road. And I was being Abbey a little Road. bit mean to Rubber Soul. The Iliad is his help, and the Odyssey is Abbey Road. There we go. This, this makes it clear to everyone. The muses are speaking through all three of us tonight. <laughs> yeah, there we go. All these great metaphors and analogies. Mm-hmm. Just, I can feel it. It's electric. Yeah, <laughs> this is a hotbed of... Yeah, this is our own little ancient Greece mm-hmm. happening right here. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know where you guys fall. on uh, Whether we're Unitarians I, or not? I... Yeah. My inclination for a long time, not that I have any right to an inclination, I'm not a Homeric scholar, although I love the word Homeric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John Wayne once once landed a punch that was Homeric, yep. I think. John Wayne <laughs> had an evening that was Homeric. Or That's that, right, it was uh, a whole evening. That, it was the whole... Well, uh, the guy walks in and the bed is broken and right, he says, right. impetuous Homeric. Yes. <laughs> the greatest line from any John Wayne movie. That's right. Uh, huh. That's what I was trying to call up. Thank you. What's that guy's name? Darby O'Gill? And uh, what, he's got some Irish name, but anyway. Uh, so, but my inclination is is the very much the director, the movie yeah. director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The unit, the, the, guy, the Unitarian. The, it's we are not, we are Trinitarians, guys. But right, we think three people wrote the Odyssey. <laughs> You're gonna confuse people. <laughs> um, did you know, by the way, 
The Odyssey is one of the best ten best books of nineteen ninety six. Yeah, we need wow. to remember to, <laughs> to Time Magazine. Brandon, I can't believe you overlooked this in our context on the front oh, yeah. of our book. Per who? Per Time Magazine. Per Time Magazine, The Odyssey is what again? One of the ten best books of nineteen ninety six. Wow, that is just very. I was way it says off that on the front mind. cover of my book. So Time was feeling generous that day. <laughs> <laughs> so it, anyhow, yeah, I like. I really do think that probably the best explanation is you have a genius auteur, semi auteur who looked at all the cheesy, crappy comic books of 20, 30 years and made a masterpiece of a movie out of it. Yeah. with And maybe with a supporting cast and maybe not, but definitely the Odyssey says one guy who knew what he was about right. from start to finish. There's no place... I. I'm sure there are people out there that have places that they would point to, like the Telemachus section versus whatever. I think the best argument you could make personally off the top of my head is the dopey ending, the way it just kind of peters out with Athena. Because Mark Twain didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. True. (laughs) I didn't say it was a good argument. I just said it's... It's well, the place where you could say... Uh, I think the, par- the preface of Paradise Lost gives a good explanation for that. It was all just about the suffering and the fluctuations of time. There mm-hmm. was no sense of... like. There's nothing it was building to right. anyways. There's yeah. not a sense of good and evil, not a sense of like great purpose and weight right. behind the... We re- it's pre-comedy <clears throat> and pre-tragedy. Yeah, which sense. is interesting because I think people want to read that into like the Iliad and to the Odyssey, mm-hmm. the things that would come later, and that's where C.S. Lewis is very helpful. Mm-hmm. And his... So... He was doing what you were, like, the bad devil's advocate, I guess, to Jake's Schleiermarker stuff, mm-hmm. where you were saying, well, isn't that good, the origins? C.S. Lewis is good about that, because he does paint you the picture of what it would be like without then getting into the cruddy, bad textual analysis right. and prideful stuff that comes with that, even if he does end up losing himself in ritual and loving blood to idol, uh, sacrifice yeah. to idols and all that <laughs> weirdness that he gets involved with. Mm-hmm. So you can go off the deep end that direction, too. What are you? Uh, I'm with it. Well, I don't care, actually. I don't care whether Homer was a real guy. It doesn't matter to me at all if it was a committee, if it was a woman, if it was a yeah. parrot that heard a story. Well, and, I mean, it, it really doesn't matter. If but it was a purple space monkey. If it was a purple space yeah. monkey or a purple space monster that snapped his fingers. and um, But I do see the principal thing that struck me in reading it this time was the beauty and intricacy and brilliance of the structure. Yeah. And so I think those 12 books belong together and some guiding hand put them that way. And this isn't just some cobbled together thing. There, there's. It seems to me that there's a precision to the way this thing builds and the way it's put together, well, the way it doesn't just tell the, the story. the way it's paced. Yeah, the way it's paced, the way For it flashes sake. back. It's just a beautifully structured, it's very, I want, I want to say modern because I want to no, selfishly I think, attribute I think, to well, us the, you know, the, the ability to do weird pacing things like what Homer was already doing. Yep. Well, it, it reads, it's a page turner for goodness sake. Yeah. Like yeah. if we can do like a, you know, a little bit of baggage check, I come to this discussion having read this book, I think four months ago, mm-hmm. like uh, that's how stale, how cold I am coming to this book because I just had it i had the time and i thought oh man this is odyssey is a big book i might as well get started on it and then i just you devoured it i devoured it because it was fun it was exciting it was a page turner and i and it's very sophisticated in the way it does that it's not like beowulf it's like he fought this monster and then he fought this monster and then he fought this monster the odyssey is like it starts in the middle and then it flashes back and then it it does all these things to keep the momentum going that it is very modern it is very you know it's quentin tarantino if you want to think about it that way it's i don't know what the way to describe it is but it's just very sophisticated it's what we see as modern yeah yeah it's people i think are surprised when they go to the odyssey and it has those techniques yeah and it's stories within stories and the way that it keeps your interest the way that like if you told it linear in a linear fashion it just wouldn't work so you see art here Whoever, however it came to be, I don't think it's just a cobbled together hodgepodge. No. There's, I, I can totally see it being, you know, meant to be performed over multiple nights, though. Well, yeah, I think you see for that. that. I mean, for that reason, the stories within the stories serve, you know, to be satisfying in themselves while still moving the the major mm-hmm. narrative forward. It divides up into chunks, and there's parts that feel very mythical, and then there's parts that feel very, uh, what's the word? I want to say dirty, but not dirty like in a sexual away just down to earth and gritty gritty and manly and and grounded and yeah real if they feel like realist stuff yeah yeah and i think people are surprised especially when i would teach this to students when they would go and they would see that 
wow, this is not what I was expecting. And I mean, it's the same with Oedipus Rex and stuff like that. It seems like theater today. Mm-hmm. It reads, I mean, Shakespeare was influenced by it, obviously. Yeah. So um, there's nothing new. Like C.S. Lewis was saying in Preface Paradise Lost, we have all the old forms. And when people try to think they're reinventing stuff, they just find out actually it's been done. Yeah. Right. And so what we do is we take these forms, which are forms for a reason, because they're the way that we tell stories, right? These flashbacks, these beginning and media rests, this structure that's, you guys talked about Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, mm-hmm. all that. You see that here. In fact, he gets a lot of his stuff from looking at Homeric stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So the hero has, has to descend into hell, and mm-hmm. then he has to descend back out and have his great conflict near the end, his denouement, and then mm-hmm. all that stuff that happens. Descending back out, by the way, I believe referred to as ascending? Ascending. Thank you. You just killed half oh, humanity. No. I killed half of the half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got to be careful. <laughs> Keep Snap doubling with the other down finger. here. Snap with the other hand. <laughs> That is a problem Thanos runs into all the time. The poor guy, he hears yeah. a song, he wants to snap along with it. Yeah, I wonder if he only kills half of the half, though. I like to think so. Yeah. Anyways, so yeah, so this is, yeah, this is the Homeric question. This is the big overarching theme and of Homeric studies even into today. Without a doubt, people look at the Odyssey, and we'll talk about the structure. I don't think that's part of the context here that we need to talk about the structure yet. No. But we talked about the fact that this is an epic with the C.S. Lewis episode, but just again to recap, it's not really an epic as we think of it today. A lot of that was given the weight and um, sense of purpose later. Like what we think, we think of the Lord of the Rings. When you say Mm -hmm. epic, most people are thinking of the Lord of the Rings, right? That's what they think of today. That's not what the Odyssey is. The Odyssey, really what happened to Odysseus doesn't matter in the end to Greece. humanity at large. Right, because there's no real sense of Greece and the purpose of Greece. And like you would have in Virgil with the Aeneid, Aeneas... It matters what happens to Aeneas because all of Rome is riding on him, right? right? There's a heavy sense of duty and purpose there. That's not here with this. So it's just basically it's about a nobleman, Odysseus, because most likely the bard was singing to nobles in a court, or at least was singing at a festival where people wanted to hear about nobles, like in a tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. Tragedies are always about noblemen because that's what people wanted to see. They wanted to see a nobleman fall. Here they wanted to see a nobleman strive with these difficult situations and uses wits to get out of it. There's no sense of right or wrong. There's no sense of evil. There's no sense of anything other than danger that we know he's going to get out of. And the fickleness of the gods, the fickleness of nature, and how suffering is just the background for all of this. And how in the light of this, all you really have is Mm self-glory and self-promotion. And that's what you get with Homer. You're not going to get much else out of that. Which is why it's so interesting that he becomes... So he's a genius, he's brilliant, the guy who wrote the Odyssey, but whether or not the ethics we get out of it Mm -hmm. is something to uh, praise is another question. And we will spend a good deal of our next couple episodes talking about that, I think. Yeah, he has been fundamental to Western tradition, to the educational system that we have up until fairly recently. Mm -hmm. And then you have the new movements that are trying to bring it back. We've looked at the way that how we look at Homer both either as we create him or as he actually existed, whatever, how that shapes the way we look at the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Another way, another interesting question here is translation. The fact that none of us here read Greek. Nope. And probably very few of our listeners read the original Greek. Jake, you read any Greek? I've because I've studied Greek does not mean that I read Greek. <laughs> yeah, and so <laughs> your spare time, you just pull out some Greek and even the Greek that I've studied, I've studied Koine Greek. It's not classical Greek. Follow up question: Have you seen the movie Greece? No. Oh, Greece. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, John Travolta, Olivia <laughs> Newton-John. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh I, yeah. I was imagining some movie spelled G R E E C E. Yeah, Greece. <laughs> My <laughs> Greece wedding. What are you wedding. talking about? <laughs> My big fat Greece wedding. My big fat greasy wedding. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> As if that movie wasn't already gross enough. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's no way that I am profitably reading Homer in Greek. Right. We'll just, so there's, the, uh, a sen- there's a sense in which none of us have read Homer. Yeah, and so that's mm-hmm. the question with translation is that I've mentioned this essay before that I really like by Walter Benjamin, and there's... I don't know if you guys have any of these essays in your life where you feel like maybe what you got out of the essay wasn't necessarily what the person was arguing. Absolutely. Yep, but it was absolutely. so absolutely. it was so helpful to you anyways. I think yep. it's a lot of things I do that, in my life. I do that all the time. Yeah, yeah and so here's <laughs> what I got out of I don't know how many times I've read an article or even a whole book and come to Nathan and said, I learned this great thing and from this essay, and then Nathan goes and reads the essay and he's like, I don't know that that was actually in there. <laughs> right. Like, but hey, but I love your it, point. It, it in general, like the point's you. great and it works. Yeah. yeah, and so what Walter Benjamin, what I think he's 
what the point that I have created, right? <laughs> that maybe he said, maybe he didn't, right. was that you're like Homer. You're taking just sure. the raw material that's. But given it's been really there. influential in the way that yeah. I look at translation. And so you have various camps of translation theory, and the problem that we have is that poetry is supposed to be and I've said this a lot, poetry is supposed to work with the language and the culture that it's in Mm -hmm. to make a great poem. And so Shakespeare's sonnets, and this is like when I'm teaching students how to write poetry, you can't write a Shakespearean sonnet today. You Mm -hmm. just can't. You're going to seem like an idiot because we don't have Elizabethan English. You have American vernacular. you got to make that work with the sonnet form. And we talked about in last episode how great that is to actually struggle with the sonnet form to make it work with American English. If you can do that, wow, great. That's what a poet does. That's the point of poetry. And so then you have the question. So you have Homer's Odyssey. When you're translating it, are you going to try and just translate it word for word to just get the bare bones of what he was doing across? Or are you going to try and take what Homer did and then somehow make it have life in English, Mm. right? And if anybody goes back and listens to the Beowulf episode, they know where I fall. Dynamic equivalence, that's where you fall. Yeah. Yep. I love Seamus Heaney's NIV. Beowulf. Yep. Brennan's a oh, yeah. Unitarian that loves dynamic that's right. equivalence. That's right. I love dynamic equivalence. Now, do I think that this is a proper way to approach biblical translation? No. <laughs> <laughs> and for people who can't figure out why. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do we have to make that argument? No. Mm. Okay. I mean, it's very clear why you don't approach the Bible that way. Right. But... Why do you approach poetry that way? Well, because if you want to, because of what C.S. Lewis was saying with the preface to Paradise Lost, if we take seriously that Homer was trying to draw you into the poem with his images and his metaphors and then the rhythms and the language and everything to try and create this world for you that is different than like what lyric poetry does or the sonnet does or anything like that. If that's what he's trying to do, then you want a poet who is so in tune to that, a translator, I'm sorry, a translator who is so in tune to that Mm -hmm. mission who knows Greek so well, but also then knows poetry in America, like modern English poetry so well, that they can then bridge that gap for us and bring life to the poem so that we can get as best to feel for what Homer was doing as we can. I like that theory of translation. Mm -hmm. I think that's why Pevier and Volkonsky write the best Tolstoy, because I think that they can do that. They know Russian so well, but they also are such good prose stylists in English that they can then give us what Tolstoy was doing Mm -hmm. to to the best as we know. Where are the problems with that? You have to trust your translator. Right. Right. That is, that's the big debate is, well, how do you know you should trust this translator? And so then you'll have translations of Homer. Maybe people have seen these before. They're just basically prose. Mm -hmm. And really, literally what it is, is a word by word translation of what Homer had. Yeah, we'll talk about this more in baggage, but that was the first, that was the way I first read. And it's boring. Homer, right? Yeah, and it was just kind of plotting. But then you get someone like Fagel's who has the ability to do both. He's a great translator, but he also is just a good writer too. And he can give some life to it. And, it, and it's very helpful. And I like that way of approaching translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does mean that certain things are untranslatable. Like my understanding is that if you can't read English, too bad. You're probably never going to really uh, know what it is to read a Shakespeare sonnet. And yep. we can't read French. So we probably will never really know what it's like to read Baudelaire. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to know what it's like to read Baudelaire, you probably need to go learn French. Sadly enough, that probably means that I will never really know what it's like to read Tolstoy. But, you know, yep, life's that way. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And that's Benjamin. That, that is what I took from Benjamin's essay, is he has this idea of translation as being this moment in time where the translator who has can catch the vision of the poet best mm-hmm. to the it can put it into the language that he's translating into. Right. And I've always been sympathetic to that mode of translation. Maybe it's just romanticism on my part. If anybody can put to death my romanticism, it usually is Jake. Mm-hmm. So let's see if he has anything to say. No, okay. <laughs> Not really. He's never put to death my What was fun about the Ready Player One episode is the fact that it, you know, knocks you down and then you have to think, well, what do I actually believe? Mm-hmm. Then you dig in your you get up and you realize, well, I actually believe that. Right. I just need to articulate better next time. Yeah, I guess Tolstoy sucks. Yeah. Ernest Klein's I great. Oh, so. yeah, that's right, Nathan. <laughs> I've gotten vibes that uh, I, I've been in the doghouse of a lot of our listeners for that episode. I think for the for the Ernest for for my for doing a superb job playing my assigned role. Yeah, right. you which did a is great defender job. of Ernest Klein. You did. For any <laughs> listeners out there who feel like they want to be offended on my account, I actually laughed a lot when I listened to that yeah, episode. No, yeah. I thought it was hilarious. But it did involve Jake taking 
arguably one of the greatest authors of all time, Leo Tolstoy, and trying to rub his nose in some fly-ridden garbage. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... And doing a decent job of it. (laughs) Yeah, he did a great job. Uh That's... That's the whole point. Uh, good. Saul Goodman, man. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Saul Goodman. Saul Goodman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I really want to say about translation. my cousin Vinny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jake, you sympathetic to what Brandon just said about translation? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, there, was a wa- there was a time when, when Tim Bailey was reading a lot about translation, and one of the things that stuck with him from a book called, I think, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Something like that. A uh, book on trans- tr- the art of translation is that it's impossible for translators to not translate up because they're, they're acting as mediators, mm-hmm. and mediators always feel the pressure of improving mm-hmm. or seeming to improve what they're working on because it reflects on them personally. And so we were just having a discussion about this, just even we have a large number of Chinese students in our church. And sometimes we have to have translators in pastoral counseling sessions and things like that. If needs escalate above essentially our Chinese minister, and there needs to be more people involved. And the the pressure in that situation to, to mediate for the translator is always in, intense. And uh, sometimes you can catch them doing it. Yeah. But that that pressure is always present, and the reason why Time Magazine called this one of the best, ten best books of 1996 is because it was Fagels that they're praising. So you have to recognize that we are getting here Fagel Homer plus Fagels, right? It's Robert Fagels, just joint. like when you're get yeah yeah, just like Beowulf, you're getting whoever wrote Beowulf, but you're getting Seamus Haney. Right. And why wouldn't you want that? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's he's awesome. awesome. And right. so it's and, we, and you see the weakness when you get... It's why you around. want to read the Cal- the McNeil Battles version of Calvin's Institutes. Yeah, as opposed it, to that horrible public domain one. That it's I why you want the THL Parker Tory or Torrance editions of Calvin's commentaries, which were only done in the New Testament, but if rather than just the big brown encyclopedic stuff done by the Calvin Translation Society, you want the actual. It's because those guys did a better job of bringing Calvin to life. That matters. You're not going to yeah. go back and read Homer in Greek. You're not going to go back and read Beowulf and the Anglo-Saxon. So you need you need a reliable, trustworthy friend who's going to do a good job of giving you the sense of the poetry, giving you what's going on, and helping you understand why this has stood this, the test of time yep. by making it live for you. And that was the thing that I forgot earlier that I wanted to say is I hate when I feel, Jake just reminded me of this, I hate, I understand all translators are in some sense, some sense going to be translating up but I hate when you catch them doing it. There's mm-hmm. nothing more obnoxious to me. That's actually what I really like about the Tolstoy translations by Pever and whatever her name is. Volkonsky. Is, is that what it is? Yeah. Which what, what, what they've specifically said is that the history of Tolstoy has been people translating him up and making him less vulgar and making him oftentimes in the older translations sound almost like a, vict- a writer of Victorian drawing room stories. Yeah. And he's just not that. He's actually a lot coarser. And so they capture some of that coarseness. And it's yeah. it's really, really helpful. And I like where Fagels captures some of the brutality and coarseness of Homer in a way that the new one that uh, Emily Wilson, maybe we could make a thing about it being by a woman. I don't know. But it smooths out things in certain yeah, ways. Sure seem to. Um, yeah. And it's good. It's a good translation as far as I could tell. I haven't read the whole thing. But it, it softens the blow of a few things where Fagels just makes it feel bloody. Yeah, People have actually accused Seamus Heaney. I remember us talking about this back in the Beowulf episodes. Uh, of reinventing Beowulf, writing his own poem. And of softening i mean i love heaney and i'm not going to dispute that heaney wrote a great poem whether it's beowulf or not but people will argue that the actual beowulf poem is much more bloody and crunchy and earthy and nasty than what heaney's kind of lyrical irish sense of of that in there yeah he definitely made it a brutal action story 
I remember it being compared to the Tolkien translation, which came out around the time we did that, which is actually much grotier. So anyways, I'm not trying to attack Shane Mancini. I love Shane Mancini, but... Well, I'm sure the Tolstoy translation is good too. Yeah. I can't imagine having Tolstoy and Shane Mancini having written a translation and then try to write my own. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say... Did I say Tolstoy? I meant Tolkien. Tolkien, that's uh, right. Um, that's what I meant too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we should be done. Yeah. Do we have an ending line? Say something funny, Jake. Sorry. Say something funny, Brandon. We're just not able to translate you, Nathan. Sorry. Uh, we can't <laughs> give you what you want. <laughs> Somebody should translate all of our podcasts into uh, ancient Bri- Greek, into British, mm-hmm. so our British listeners can. Oh no, we're really good at that. Yeah. Hey there, hey Brad. Hi, hey Brad. Reminds me of the day was it what you thought what it you was? Cooking on the Barbie. We, we, Where we, does our friends overseas really love our accents? Yep. Yeah, yeah, they do. Pond. We uh, handled Brad's uh, complaint in the last episode. Oh, good. So, yeah. Um, we really do put a lot of work and effort into this stuff. It'd mean a lot to us if you would take the time to not just rate, but review. And yeah. it'd mean a lot more to us if you'd take the time to go to patreon.com forward slash the booking and just sign up. Some of you have been out there and you've been thinking to yourselves, oh yeah, I should do that for a while. And it's not hard. It's really easy. A dollar a month, $4 a month. You won't even feel it, but it, we will. Mm-hmm. And we will thank you from the bottom of our hearts. So go sign up and support the booking today. And remember, you get us to $500, the Mysterious Phantom has guaranteed, I have an on good authority, to do a behind the paywall show. So you'll want you want to hear that. that. Brandon loves the Mysterious Phantom more than just about anyone. You mean Bradley. Mm hmm. I don't know. I've, I've never met the Mysterious Phantom myself. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, Brandon. Bye, Nathan. Bye, Jake. Goodbye. Bye, Muses. Goodbye. <laughs> and it's one of the Muses. <laughs> okay, Lyopi. Goodbye.